Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A good colleague of mine once told me there's one thing investors want, tomorrow's prices. Well, today, I think most people would settle for one thing, an advanced read of the non-manufacturing ISM. That data point comes out in around about three hours' time. Here in New York, that is where the focus is. Krishna Mamani joining us on the phone now, I'm pleased to say, Invesco Vice Chairman of Investments. Krishna, great to have you with us. Let's just start with that data point. How important will that read be at 10 a.m. for this market? Well, so we know the manufacturing economy in the U.S. is in a a recession, or if not a recession, very close to a recession. So if there is salvation, the path to salvation uh, lies through uh, the service economy doing meaningfully better uh, and employment going up because of that service economy. So it is by far the most important data point. I expect it to show reasonable strength, Uh, you know, not not strength, strength, but uh, not the sort of uh, disaster we have seen in manufacturing. Krishna, it took one data point to spark a load of jitters in this market? Does it take more than one data point to settle things down again? Well, so the, the, the slowdown is real. And I think coming into October, uh, we were seeing stabilization. And in the middle of all the other things that is going on, <clears throat> a weak data point clearly spooked the market. I don't think we need a series of data points, but I do think uh, we need some semblance of uh, uh, normalcy. That means things coming up, uh, coming up at uh, close to expectations uh, on, on the data front. You know, uh, Krishna, that what uh, Global Wall Street is looking at right now is correlations. I was just talking to our head of foreign exchange analysis here, and he made real clear the level on yen is key. We've seen the two-year yield stun and come ever lower this morning. Folks, it's not yet to where it was early September, but boy, Krishna, have we gotten there quickly. When do we see other indicators correlate with that abrupt move? Well, so I, I think, uh, you know, the, the two-year yield and yen are highly correlated. They basically are the uh, uh, the safe assets, if you will. Uh, if people are worried about things, that's what they gravitate towards. Uh, having said that, I think the two-year is being driven today more by expectation that the Fed will probably end up cutting in October, which in my judgment they should do because the manufacturing part of the economy is in trouble and they need to help it and rate cuts yeah. need to transmit uh, uh, that signal to the markets and the economy. I mean, for me, John, and we'll do more data checks here today, as John mentioned, a little bit of an equity bounce off better prices earlier. John, for me, it was just simple. I, I made a massive transfer yesterday to the Invesco Forpal Cash Fund. Oh, did you? Yeah, I thought out, that's where all from, your money was already. Tri- I went out from triple <laughs> cash. No, no, no. I went from triple leverage cash out to the Invesco Look, the performance has been at the front end of the yield curve quite clearly as we take a few more baby steps towards potentially maybe another rate cut. What's been interesting for me, Krishna, is just how stubborn actually the longer end of the yield curve has been. The 10-year Treasury yield came in three basis points on a day the equity market was down 1.8%. Krishna, what kind of signal do you take from that? I would have expected if you told me the market was going to be down almost two percentage points, I'd have expected a bigger bid at the long end of the bond market. Well, so I think that sort of tells you things. Uh, that is, I, I, there is a lot of uh, kind of bad news expectation already built into uh, the bond market. So the likelihood 
that uh, uh, the, the level of 10-year rates are going to drive meaningfully just with softness. That is, we have to see a real recession for 10-year yields to go down meaningfully. And I don't think that's in the cards. So any bit of good news, 10-year backs up rather than rallies meaningfully. Yeah, but do we have a real yield anywhere? I mean, Krista, come on. I mean, you, you've got decades of experience of a normative yield market. You say we want to get back to normal. Where's the real yield, and is just a, does it disappear on a European-like basis? Well, so real yield has already disappeared. So any measure of inflation probably uh, uh, gets you to the calculation that real yields in the U.S. even 10 years are negative. So that, that is a matter of profound concern. Uh, I think it, it, it's, it, part of it is U.S. economic weakness, but a lot of it is what is going on the rest of the world. What that is telling you, I guess, is um, you know if you're looking for uh, income, government bond markets is probably not the place where you where you're gonna find it. Krishna, we've had a couple of growth scares. We've talked about this all week and all through last week as well. We're in the depths of another growth scare. It's the first, third growth scare of this whole cycle. 2011, you said stick with it. 15, 16, you said stick with it. 18, 19, are you still saying stick with it? I think it is still stick with it. That is, if, if the, the, the trade war clearly is a big issue for the market, but there's enough momentum in the uh, service and consumer part of the economy for us to kind of see this thing through. If that doesn't work out, then we'll have a problem. But I don't think it is, we, we are at that point just yet. Uh, the economy is going to grow, but it's going to grow at a much more reduced pace probably close to 1.5% uh, or, or one, somewhere between one5 and 2%, and that's probably how it is going to be in 2020 as well. Krishna, what would it take for you to capitulate? Oh, I, I think what it will take is basically the service economy showing significant weakness, not just weakness, significant weakness, um, because the way U.S. has been isolated from the rest of the world is on the back of that, uh, that part of the economy. If there's weakness there, then we are like everyone else. Krista, this is so important. Again, folks, Christian Mamani with us, the vice chairman of Invesco. You have maybe more than anyone we speak to hands-on international investment work over many decades. One of our themes John and I have had is what is the timing to get back into international stocks versus the one-way call to own U.S. blue chips, which is clearly where we've been. Do you see any indication you and your team have the courage to load up on international stocks waiting better news? Well, so if you are going to load up on international stocks, I would look at emerging markets because, again, the, the, the stabilization there is, is more apparent than, let's say, the parts of Europe. Having said that, for you to load up on international stocks, you have to have an expectation that the Trump administration at some point this year will reach some sort of a trade deal. Uh, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be an all-encompassing deal, but a deal that at least uh, removes the dark cloud of trade issues on the market. Well, Krishna, let's Without get that, to that question. Let's round things out there. Your call to stick with it, how much of that hinges on this trade dispute settling down? Well, a lot of uh, it is contingent on the trade dispute not getting worse. I, I'm not looking for a resolution. I'm just looking for stability on the trade front. That is, all the uh, all the tariffs that have been announced probably get implemented, and but we don't get into kind of non-tariff issues like capital controls and stuff like that. If we get in there, then it's all over. Hey, Krishna. Uh, I expect that not to be the case. We've got to leave it there. It's always great to catch up with you. Appreciate your time this morning. Invesco Vice Chairman of Investments.
Margie, done. Margie probably wants to weigh in on this. Go to Margie. You think Margie Patel wants to weigh in on nineteen eighty six? Let's find out if Margie Patel wants Margie to weigh Patel in on Margie Patel joins us now, Wells Capital Management Senior Portfolio Manager. I will offer you the chance, Margie. Do you want to weigh in on nineteen eighty six? No, I'd uh, rather not uh, weigh in on that. Thank you. She wants to move on. Move on to yield and, and the new the new high yield, which is dividend growth. Let's talk about the bond market, Margie. I would have expected a bigger move on a 10-year, on a 30-year yield, given the pain we've seen in the equity market. What's the signal you take from that? Oh, I think that the uh, treasury curve is pretty much immune to little short-term fluctuations in stocks. We're at these very low levels. I think we'll stay here probably in a trading range heading lower from these levels. So we're a little above uh, one and a half on the 10-year. I think we'll stay around there or go lower. Margie, last time we caught up, we were talking about income in the equity market. Is that still looking attractive? Well, yes, it is, because you have the yield on the Standard & Poor's being just about competitive with the yield on the whole Treasury curve, which is quite remarkable. The uh, If you look at the uh, Standard & Poor's as a PE and you translate the Treasury curve into PEs, you look and say, gee, you know, the Treasury yields are trading at a PE of 50 with no real opportunity for capital appreciation. So you just come back to saying stocks look very attractive. Margie, what has changed with all the flows? What have corporate officers and particularly CFOs done in the issuance of paper? Give us some insight there. Well, what they've done since the financial crisis has been so important is they have reliquified their balance sheet. They've opportunistically raised money in the debt market, but they've kept most of that cash right on the balance sheet. So they have extreme flexibility that if banks restricted, it wouldn't matter to them. Is a blended basis, where is their duration of choice? If, If they're sitting there, the CFO and the CEO are having a quiet cup of coffee, and they're like, rates are here. Maybe they'll go lower, but we've got to act now. What duration is the sweet spot for corporate issuance? Well, I think you've seen corporate issuance is fairly long. It's actually longer than the average treasury duration. And I think corporations are feeling the longer the better to lock they're locking their it in. rates. Yeah, yep. they're locking it in. Well, give us, what's a tenor on that? Is it like treasuries five years, corporate seven years, or like municipal bonds? They're going out 20 years. Yes, because there's a, a huge appetite for longer maturity, longer duration, fixed income paper. So they have no difficulty at all selling these. Mark, I'd love to get your comments on what's happening with high yield. We're starting to see some cracks. Looking at the Bloomberg Barclays high yield index, the spread at the moment is north of 400 basis points over. Through the last year or so, through 2019, we've had two periods of spread widening that's taken us pretty close to 450. And that's been a buying opportunity before it's been followed up by spread compression again. Margie, is this time different? No, it's the same opportunity. Most of that spread widening, two reasons. One is simply treasury rates have continued to fall. High yield prices have more or less stayed uh, the same over the last 12 months. They've actually had price appreciation. So that's a big component of it. And secondly, with slower growth, you're seeing a little more distress in the triple C and lower sector. So when you look at an average, average spread, those spreads are pulling the spread wider. What's the energy dynamic now? Was that all worked out X years ago or is that still a risk to the garbage sector? I think the energy sector will still, because basically the fundamentals are negative, the um, prices of energy look as if they're coming down in spite of crisis. So I think that's still a a vulnerable area. Work through to our coupon listeners how you rationalize dividend growth. How does Margie Patel approach 
a company and you want to say, I'm going to take the, the dividend growth out X number of years. How do you do that? Well, I'd say, first of all, many companies pay a dividend yield that is equal to maybe a little less than treasury. So right off the bat, you have the same You're there with an equivalency, yeah. Correct. Right. And uh, so, and if you look at the company's cash flow, the difference between what they pay out in a dividend and the cash that they bring in the door after all their expenses, they still have room to raise a dividend. So it's pretty easy <clears> to see how you could have appreciation in the dividend plus the stock moving up as the dividend moves up. Monkey, I want to wrap things up by talking about a single name, and I do hope that you can just weigh in. You don't have to talk about this single name, but just talk more broadly, if you will. WeWork. The yield on the WeWork bond, the 2025 note, that security, has gone from in and around 7% to north of 11.6%. And Margie, yes, there are some very, very idiosyncratic reasons for what has happened with WeWork, but more broadly, we can pick up example after example where the credit market just has not led the story, that it's waited for the information elsewhere, particularly from the equity side. Margie, that's not a world we're used to. We're used to credit leading equity. And if I talk about this more broadly, back in 2018, going into Q4, once again, credit didn't leave equity. Arguably, it followed. Has something changed, Margie, in just the way the credit market used to lead and now it doesn't seem to anymore? Well, I think part of that is just the scarcity of high-yield paper. A lot of high-yield issuance has been sucked off into the loan market, so it isn't in the high-yield market. So there's a real hunger for paper. Here is a new name to the marketplace, a big coupon. So many investors bought it because their yield starved. Margie, thank you so much. Margie Patel, Wells Capital Manager. Thanks, Margie. You need a new name to read. She is Shuli Wren, R-E-N, Shuli Wren, writing for Bloomberg Opinion, out of the Chicago Economics Combine with years on Wall Street. And here's what's wonderful about Shuli Wren. She's got a fabulous quant foundation, which means she brings mathematics into every dynamic when she writes, whether it's on WeWork and Mr. Diamond or the debacle of Thomas Cook, and of course, with a focus on Asia uh, as well. From Hong Kong, Shuli Ren this morning. Surely the uproar of the Bloomberg News article of limiting investment to China. How would operationally that even occur? How do you limit investment? Well, uh, thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, actually, we don't really know, right? Like uh, the, the Bloomberg uh, News article, the, the report itself, uh, uh, talked about a sweeping array of things that uh, the White House was considering, from basically banning the Chinese companies, uh, ADRs, from uh, from listing in New York, to, to uh, disallowing uh, pension funds to buy into Chinese uh, publicly listed companies. It's really unclear how, how it works. Like, first of all, what's considered U.S. money. If, I, if my fund is uh, Cayman registered, but I have some U.S. investors, is that U.S. money or not, right? And then what is yeah. considered China money? I mean, Alibaba, the, the, the CABA uh, ticker itself is Cayman uh, registered uh, yeah. uh, shell company. Well, we're going to shut down the so Cayman it, Islands it, as well. Yeah, you know, I, I look surely yeah, at this, exactly. and, and to me, the struggle here with the heritage of what you and I grew up with, knowing that Hong Kong started in the colonial era, of 1840 and migrated out and developed after World War II into the juggernaut. It is, is this a president that wants to go back to the 19th century or is he going back to Cate Blanchett and Elizabeth I and uh, Tudor England? 
I, I suppose the president wants a divorce from the rest of the world. I mean, there, there is trade, and then the U.S. is uh, getting uh, it's starting to see the hit on the ISM numbers this week, right? And then, like then, there was the, the banning uh, U.S. technology exports to China. But uh, but the one issue is that uh, like. Uh, U.S. investors are, are smart. They are looking for investment opportunities. What they see is that China is a big country that has a lot of demand, but no supply, right? And U.S. Mm-hmm. has all the supply of technologies, but they don't want to sell to the demand side anymore. So where do they want to align themselves with? Perhaps with China, because it's kind of a new market opening up. Like Huawei used to get all the supplies from, from U.S. chip makers like Micron, um, Intel, et cetera, well, right? Now they have mm-hmm. to find their their local suppliers. And I think that's why uh, the White House does not want to have U.S. capital investing into Chinese companies, because the temptation is there. Like, uh, you know, if you're a venture capital fund, uh, I, I can see them wanting yeah. to invest in Chinese companies, right? So sure. perhaps that, that, yeah. that's a consideration. Shirley Ren, one final question. We've been transfixed uh, here this week by the pageantry of Beijing and the protest of Hong Kong. How do you gauge this moment in Hong Kong? You are into a late Thursday night in Hong Kong and into an historic weekend. How do you gauge the mood in your Hong Kong? I think uh, there is a lot of uh, quiet tension uh, uh, in Hong Kong right now. I was just like taking the tram like uh, uh, into work uh, uh, in the Bloomberg Central Office, right? And then you see like near the uh, office, uh, like a government yeah. office uh, areas, like uh, there is a lot of graffiti. Um, and there, there is a lot of unease. I mean, like uh, Hong Kong just show, showed up their, their August uh, retail sales data, uh, data. It was down 23%. Yeah. Basically, a lot of the, the retail sector food food uh, uh, industry and the hotel industry, a lot of people are basically perhaps half a million people are doing part-time now, right? There, yeah. There's just a lot of ease uh, for sure. And then there, there is a fear of capital flight. Um, if you if you notice, like uh, uh, Li Keqing, the, the Hong Kong's wealthiest family, they usually don't come to the bond market to issue new bonds. They've been right. issuing new bonds very well, it, rapidly know, because, uh, yeah. yeah. Maybe they'll invest in America while we're not investing in China. Shirley Ren, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I can't say enough about her work, folks, at Bloomberg Opinion. It is exceptionally informed uh, with her uh, dynamics. Right now on our Durable Volatility, Dean Kernett joins us, and we're thrilled that he could uh, be with us today. Dean, what is the distinction of how we oscillate right now, how we agitate? What's the distinction right now? Well, we're, we're coming off a, a pretty low uh, vol period, about a month where the realized volatility in the S&P was kind of stuck between 6 and 8%. Uh, these last two days, the market's down 3% in aggregate. Uh, we haven't had that happen since the first couple of days of August, which uh, was a, was a quite a volatile month, so we're in transition. You know what we tend to observe is that low vol periods cluster; they tend to reinforce themselves. High vol periods do the same, and uh, we're in at least potentially a transition period where, um, of course, we know there's this global overhang of uncertainty from trade, and um, you might even add U.S. political dysfunction there. But uh, as you note, that we're we're looking at a lot of data too. Uh, yeah. It's, very clear, at least at the manufacturing side right. of the U.S. global economy is decelerating. And the question yeah. is, 
is it more broad-based than that? What do you see, and this is pretty esoteric, folks, there's the VIX, which is the spot volatility, and then pros like you look at the forward VIX or the volatility and the volatility is a separate idea. What do you see in those uh, professional things? Right, it's interesting. Uh, obviously, the VIX is what's uh, quoted uh, quite a bit, but if you look at the VIX term structure, so VIX index CT, go, contract table, it's going to show you all the futures. And uh, this configuration right now is just absolutely flat like a pancake. Uh, everything is just right around 20. Uh, it's pretty interesting. It's uh, just about as flat as, uh, flat as the yield curve. Uh, what does that tell us? Uh, it tells us that um, in typical format, the curve is upward sloping, uh, so that uh, it's really the short-dated uh, implied volatility levels that are low. Uh, so these have come up a little bit as markets have gotten worried. Uh, and right now, the VIX, uh, October VIX future is also right around 20. They trade at a very significant premium to uh, the backward-looking realized volatility, which over the last month is just 10. As I said, it started to pop up a little bit these last couple of days, but this is a significant premium of implied to realized, which really puts pressure on the folks that are nervous and defensive and, and spending money on premium, uh, because it's not that the market has really started to move just yet. Uh, so for the VIX to stay up here, you're going to have to start to see these one, one and a half percent moves in the S&P materialize on a daily basis for that risk premium uh, to hold up. Dean, first of all, thank you for, for teaching me, a 10-year Bloomberg veteran, a new function, VIX Index CT. I just popped it up. Very cool uh, function here, giving us a sense of kind of the forward look on the VIX. Very helpful. Um, it seems like over the last two days, the, the, the narrative in the market has really kind of veered away from trade uh, and focused really on the near-term economic outlook, particularly uh, the consumer. How are you thinking about kind of the outlook for the economy and maybe what that means for volatility in the markets? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of value to studying uh, periods of uh, risk off of, of episodes of, of significant volatility. And, you know, there are always some commonality. There's, there's rhyme and rhythm to them, but there's always a little bit of a different setup as well. And I think there's a lot of things that have to conspire together. I think uh, Krugman called it the smorgasbord effect. There's always a number of things that have to interact. And, and certainly the global economy slowing uh, as a backdrop uh, is a big part of it at this point. You know, we really haven't seen this uh, for a period of time. We had that soft patch in early 2016 as oil cracked and people were worried about a China deval. So that was real and it did in effect self-correct. Yeah. I think the, the setup here is more vulnerable. Um, and I, I say that because a lot of the stimulus that was thrown on the U.S. economy in a late cycle way is starting to roll off. Yeah. Um, you know, globally, things are weak. And then just one last thing is there is both real and imagined questions about monetary policy uh, efficacy. Is it going to work? Uh, is yeah. it going to work you know, forcefully enough? I think that's a big deal. Well, you know, I look at your CT chart again, VIX index CT, for those of you with a terminal in your car. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Dean, Usually there's a steepness to the forward market, like the VIX is set low and there's an understanding it will be higher later. What is the significant that the curve isn't curvy anymore, but it's flat as a pancake, as you put it, you know, near 19 and now it's right on 20. What is that significance? So it, see if I can um, run through this really quickly. The upward slope comes from the reality that implied volatility typically is higher 
than realized volatility. And for folks to capture that from a profit standpoint, uh, the, the options that you want to sell to capture that premium are the shortest right. rated options you can. Um, so um, when realized volatility starts to pick up, this, this term structure starts to flatten out. Uh, and that's, again, that's what you're seeing right now. In a crisis, uh, in something like a, you know, November of 2008 or a sovereign crisis in 2011, you'll see a deeply inverted uh, vol curve. They're not rare. They're not, you know, it doesn't happen often, and they tend to work themselves out over time. Uh, but this is the first indication that, you know, folks are getting nervous because, you know, if you think it's going to rain tomorrow, you want to, you know, prepare today. Um, and you want to buy your insurance on a very short-dated basis. So, so the bid to the short-term options is reflecting this increased yeah. very near-term nervousness. This flatness. Uh, Dean Kernan, this is brilliant. Thank you so much. Dean Kernan, macro risk advisors there and some of the nuances of pros look at. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.